Welcome to the Biden Transition Podcast, the podcast that discusses how President Joe Biden and his new administration will tackle some of America's most pressing issues. For our fifth episode, we've invited Caitlin Burns, a reporter and podcast host, to talk about trans rights. What Trump administration rules allow for the discrimination against trans people in housing, healthcare, sports, and other areas? What is Biden's history of supporting trans people? And what can the Biden administration do to protect trans people from discrimination? Those questions and more in a very personal episode coming up next. Welcome to the Biden Transition Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle McQueen, with today's guest, Caitlin Burns. Caitlin is a contributing writer at Vox. You may have also seen her work in the Washington Post, Vice, and Teen Vogue. And she is the co-host of the newest podcast, Cancel Me Daddy. Thanks so much for joining us, Caitlin. Thanks for having me on. Full disclosure, Caitlin and I are both trans women, and I, I've been wanting to figure out a way to use the pod to push the agenda of destroying gender and turning every child in America trans, also to destroy girls' soccer as we know it. Caitlin, you seem like a good first step, so thanks so much for helping me. <laughs> yes, the five trans soccer players are definitely going to destroy an entire sport. <laughs> I feel like all like three trans soccer players are really just a major threat to the integrity of the game. So yeah, I mean, there's actually a goalkeeper that played Division Two women's soccer like a couple of years ago, and nobody knew she was trans throughout her entire career. She was living stealth. After her career was over, she came out to her teammates, and like nobody knew. So I just think it's really funny that like those types of stories are never brought up in this conversation it's always like the one or two sort of marginal champions in relatively obscure sports that that get all the attention but there's like a bunch of trans women just quietly going about their business in women's sports who like people don't even notice so the, the whole conversation is just kind of hysterical I'm kind of like in that boat like I play women's hockey you know they're post-college but still high level hockey and I think a bunch of my teammates know a bunch of my teammates, I don't think no, maybe no. I, I don't really know. I just don't even bring it up. And like, mm -hmm. nobody cares. But also like, if you were to ask any of my teammates, if somebody were to say like, oh, I got an unfair advantage because my strength over some of my teammates, I think I feel like a bunch of my teammates would get really upset because I'm probably like the 12th strongest player on the team. <laughs> like, it's absolutely absurd. Yeah. The example I always bring up is um, I was a starter on my high school boys basketball team, and I would not have been the best girls player at our school, even if I hadn't taken any hormones. We had a division one basketball player on the girls team who was just straight up a better player than me, like no hormones involved. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's just... To me, the conversation is more about maintaining this idea that men are inherently superior to women, especially athletically, than it really is about fairness. I think people are just too committed to the sort of patriarchal hierarchy currently at play, and they just refuse to open their mind to any other possibilities. Yeah, it's really difficult, and it's staggering to see kind of at the forefront of the conversation now. Before it was like bathrooms and like what bathroom we got to pee in, but now I feel like public opinion has kind of like changed on that so now they're like oh what's just attack sports so um. yeah their first couple of attacks didn't work and now they're on to something new that they think will work and that's pretty much all there is to it so you're the first openly trans capitol hill reporter that i guess we know of how has 
trans sentiment changed regarding trans women, especially in Washington over the years? That's a good question. I think that progressives and those generally on the Democratic side are less afraid to take a stand on trans rights than they used to be. I mean, you look at somebody like Joe Biden, who's generally pretty centrist, even in the Democratic Party, which is center left. And he is pretty unwavering in his commitment to trans rights. And he has been for almost a decade now. I think it was 2012, where he called trans rights the civil rights issue of his time. And that was early, you know, for Democrats. But I think what you're saying now is the party has moved with him on this issue. and it's pretty uncontroversial to just support trans rights in the Democratic Party. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And I think chief among them is just how strenuously the Trump administration attacked trans rights. It's really easy at this point to position trans rights as an opposite of Trump. And I think for Democrats, anything that positions them as the opposite of Trump is a winner electorally at this point. I remember watching Biden's acceptance speech when he mentioned trans rights, and I was just completely blown away. I just, I, you don't see politicians after taking office really pushing that message of trans equality, especially from the executive office like that, the way that I feel like Biden has since even he won the nomination. What is the significance of Biden really making one of his top priorities trans rights? I think it's really refreshing to see uh, vocal support from the executive office for trans rights. I think if you compare Biden's positions and, and statements on trans rights to Trump's, it, it's really striking. Tr you know, Trump rarely ever mentioned trans people specifically. I think he gave one vague statement on the White House lawn during a press gaggle about trans people. And then, of course, there was his tweets about the trans military ban. But other than that, the, his administration's agenda was pushed by his political appointees and not he himself. There was a Politico article deep into the election cycle that sort of talked about how Republicans were debating whether or not to make trans rights a central presidential campaign issue. And there were sort of dividing lines within even the White House. And it was basically Trump and his daughter Ivanka on one side and Jared Kushner versus Trump Jr. and Eric Trump on the other. And and Trump basically didn't really want to go there. So ultimately, they didn't. And I think it actually saved Biden a lot of scrutiny for his policy positions on trans rights. But now that Biden is in the Oval Office, you know, he can sort of do what he wants because he already won the election. So we'll see how that pays off for him down the road electorally. In a way, it seems like there's been more progress done around trans rights here than even in England. I feel like the sentiment's kind of going the other way there. How does America compare in terms of trans rights, say, overseas in England or different countries? It's interesting. Legally, I would say England is ahead on protecting trans people in many ways. Their Equality Act, which is their civil rights anti-discrimination law, has covered trans people for years. And of course, here in the U.S., that hasn't been the case up until Bostock, and even Bostock's ruling was fairly limited although Biden is now expanding that beyond just employment. So if you look at legally, I think that there are rights that British trans people have had for a long time that American trans people have not. But in terms of public sentiment, I think it's uh, going in a better direction in the U.S. than it is in Great Britain right now. What you've seen over there is a very 
motivated media campaign to sort of marginalize trans people and, and minimize any sort of requests for rights that trans people have. Whereas, you know, the media environment here in the U.S. is much more friendly, I think, to trans perspectives. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of transphobia here as well. For example, Senators Mitt Romney and Rand Paul recently questioned Miguel Cardona during his Education Secretary confirmation hearing about boys participating in girls' school sports, implying that trans girls are actually boys and shouldn't be able to compete against other girls. The line of questioning seems similar to a lot of the transphobic discourse surrounding trans women playing sports over in England. Do you see some of those transphobic arguments in England spilling over into the U.S.? I think there is a large sort of anti-trans propaganda network that has popped up in the U.K. that we're starting to see, you know, come over here. They had the Kira Bell decision in the U.K. courts, which now requires that trans adolescents get court approval before being able to start puberty blockers. The ruling basically said that adolescents cannot consent to care if it's related to transitioning, although the court maintains that it's still okay for them to consent to literally any other medical procedure. So they just basically singled out trans kids and dysphoric kids. But what you're seeing is that the messaging and the arguments made in that case are also being made in the U.S., particularly in state legislatures controlled by Republicans who are also trying to ban trans adolescents from accessing puberty blockers. So I think there is a large crossover. I think it's purposeful. I think that the American right has driven much more of the British debate than I think British people want to admit that they have. And they're certainly sharing notes at the least. And I suspect that they are coordinating more broadly than most people realize. I think the UK is becoming sort of a testing ground for anti-trans arguments to see what breaks through. And one of the reasons for that is the anti-trans movement in the UK has much more of a left-leaning presence than it does in the US. And I think American conservatives see that as a way to like see if they can reach more moderate people by using transphobic political arguments here in the US. I think thus far, it hasn't really paid off at all. You know, conservatives haven't won on an LGBT issue in like decades. <laughs> um, and that includes trans issues. So we're in a very interesting moment. So a lot of progress in terms of stopping discrimination against trans people was made under the Obama administration. Then here comes Trump and the Trump administration made a lot of sweeping changes specifically surrounding like homeless shelters and insurance companies denying patients coverage for trans services and different things like that. What are some of the ways that the Trump administration impacted discrimination policies? I believe, and I'd have to go back and double check, but I believe that every single branch and department of the government under Trump instituted at least one anti-trans policy. Last I checked, my friend Jillian Brandstetter, who's a press secretary at the National Women's Law Center, told me that every department except for transportation had done something anti-trans, and this was a couple of years ago. And then like a, a week or two after hearing her say that, I noticed there was a news item where the Department of Transportation banned this Iowa city or Nebraska city, or it was somewhere in the Midwest, um, from having pride-themed crosswalks, saying it was against federal law. Wow. So I'm like, okay, well, that was the last department. So basically every department has done something transphobic. Huh. When you step back and look at it that way, it's pretty mind-blowing. 
especially given that Trump himself rarely ever mentioned trans people directly. It was sort of just this thing that was quietly done in the background. And the really frustrating part for me as a trans political reporter is watching all my colleagues like obsessively reporting on Trump's every word, Trump's every tweet, and really missing the policies that his appointees were instituting in the background. I think that was an institutional failure amongst our media colleagues. That's absolutely wild. Every single department. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And a lot of it was emanating from the Department of Health and Human Services Civil Rights Office, which was, of course, run by Roger Severino, who's a longtime anti-LGBT activist. I think he was sort of the driving force behind many different departments, anti-trans messaging and policy. What's the justification? Religious liberty? You want my honest opinion? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're about honesty here. We're getting to the truth. <laughs> I think Severino's just a transphobe and he gets off on exercising power over queer people. And, you know, he had a powerful position, so he just rolled with it. Oh, jeez. What was your justification in the rulings? It's always, you know, some form of we're protecting women and children. You look at the healthcare rule, for example, which I know Severino had a direct hand in. I think his department basically wrote the policy, but... What they did was they decided that trans people do not have protection from discrimination on the basis of sex that everybody else in the U.S. does. The interesting thing is they sort of unsexed us to make this argument, right? They, they said, well, men and women have these rights, trans people do not. Of course, this was contradicted later by the Bostock ruling, but the justification for it was they they were claiming that doctors with religious convictions were being forced into performing transition-related medical procedures, which is hogwash because GRS, genital reassignment surgery or gender reassignment surgery, however you want to say it, is highly specialized. Like You need to have years of specific experience performing these procedures um, before you can start offering them. And it's not something that you can just walk down to your local hospital for and demand. Like that, that is just not something that happens. And they were repeatedly claiming that this was happening and they they needed a whole federal law to prevent it from happening. Right. There's like very few across the entire country. Yeah. I think you saw it more related with top surgery for trans men or hysterectomies for trans men, which I think is much more closely related to reproductive health care than it is trans people, right? I mean, they're one and the same because those two issues go hand in hand, but I think it was just a reheated anti-choice arguments just expanding into a new area of medicine. Wow. So it seems like Biden made a lot of executive orders that reversed a lot of those discrimination policies, stopped Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military. Has he been able to undo all the different policies that the, the Trump administration put in place? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is mostly yes, he has. I think that it's hard to say because we're still so new into the administration, right? So his executive order ordered departments to look at their existing policy structure and change them so that they don't discriminate against LGBT people, but it'll still take time to actually change those policies. So I think the more cogent answer is he has started the government down a path of rolling back these policies. But it's not like we woke up, you know, like a week into the Biden administration and all of the Trump era policies are gone. That's just not the case. And probably a lot of these will get tied up in court because there's they're bound to be lawsuits over them. And just knowing how policy changes take, it could probably take a while, right? Yeah. 
That's exactly right. Looking at some of the state legislatures that you mentioned earlier that have been passing, you know, really transphobic laws, what are some of those transphobic laws that you've been noticing and what kind of power does Congress and Biden have to stop them? There are three main themes to these anti-trans laws at the state level. The first is obviously, we discussed this a little bit earlier, but uh, bans on trans girls and women and girls and women's sports. The claim on the right is that they're protecting the integrity of women's and girls' sports, but in actuality, they're creating a whole class of people who essentially aren't allowed to participate in sports anymore. And the second one, as I mentioned earlier, is banning transition care for trans adolescents, like puberty blockers and surgeries, although surgeries for those under 18 are extremely rare, especially in the United States. It's more a ban on puberty blockers and hormones for older teenagers. And then the third that you're seeing in the most conservative states is they're trying to once again ban trans people from changing the sex on their birth certificate. Now, this might not seem like such a big deal, but think about all the times you have to produce your birth certificate as part of your basic ID. Like Sometimes you have to apply for a job and you have to provide a birth certificate as proof of eligibility to work in the U.S. You have to provide a birth certificate when you get a driver's license. You know, you have to produce birth certificates all the time for, for official things. And if you remove the ability for trans people to change their sex, you open them up to the possibility of somebody who just doesn't like trans people. And there's plenty of them, and many of them worked for the Trump administration, can just decide to be dicks on a whim and discriminate against that trans person. So it's really more of a privacy issue than anything else for trans people. So under the Trump administration, they appointed a lot of conservative judges. How difficult do you think the Trump administration has made it to counter some of these policies and laws in the courts? Well, so far, none of the state level laws against trans people have actually made it into law. I think, yeah, it was Idaho who passed both the birth certificate change ban and the the sports ban, and both of them have have been held up in court while it's litigated. Uh, Matana has done the same thing as well, I believe, or is trying to currently, along with uh, both Dakotas. And there's many more states there, you know, basically any state with a conservative legislature or, or even a closely divided legislature has had bills pop up, but luckily none of them thus far have made it into law. And it's too early to predict how the courts are going to decide on these cases. Now, thinking about the psychological impacts of these laws and just transphobia among politicians and prominent writers like J.K. Rowling and others, as a trans person, which is a population that has high suicide rates, how does hearing these transphobic messages over and over again and seeing these new laws attacking their rights really impact psychologically a lot of different people? The overwhelming message from all of this is that queer to trans people, that there's a large segment of society that just outright rejects them, right? And you never know when you're going to run into one of those people, you know, one of those persons out in the world. So there is a lot of anxiety that this adds just to everyday interactions. I mean, think about if you're going to a restaurant, are you going to get confronted in the bathroom by staff? Like, it creates a lot of unknowns in the everyday lives of trans people. And I think that's exactly the goal of a lot of these efforts. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you so much. And thanks so much to all of you for listening. 
I'm Danielle McLean. You can listen to the Biden Transition Podcast on bidentransitionpodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks for more expert insight into how Team Biden will tackle America's most pressing issues.